Hi, this is Joe Van Wee, your host of All Better. I had a few announcements. If you're interested in subscriber content, which we're about to launch, this would be step workshops, cognitive behavioral therapy tools, and mindfulness practices that are approachable and can be very useful in reducing anxiety, rumination, and depression. Please send us a, a message on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. And if you like the episodes that you've been hearing very much, please stop by Apple Podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and a small review. This helps us stay relevant in the field of content and helping people and their families with substance use disorder. Thank you. Hello, and thanks again for listening to another episode of All Better. I'm your host, Joe Van Wee. Today's guest is Dr. Aileen Van Wee. She is my cousin. Aileen finished her undergrad studies at Temple University with a Bachelor's of Arts in Psychology, the Honors Research Track. She also finished with a dual degree in Spanish. She continued her studies where she picked up a Master's in Clinical Psychology at Loyola University in Maryland. She continued to finish her PsyD in Clinical Psychology also at Loyola University of Maryland. It's in Baltimore. Currently, she is the staff psychologist at South Florida State Hospital, where she serves as the unit psychologist for the Challenging Behavior Unit. Today, we discuss some of the distinctions and uniqueness of the conditions she finds at the hospital. Uh, That becomes an interesting chat. We also talk about how she started her career in drug and alcohol treatment in Baltimore, Maryland, We discuss the continuum of care and trend that has changed over the last decade, uh, specifically on how you design a partial hospitalization program. Uh, The next 90 days after inpatient treatment, we go into the weeds on that, and we also touch on some of her research experience at Loyola and her dissertation, finalizing kind of a quantitative study assessing the efficacy of mindfulness-based stress reduction practices on adults receiving outpatient treatment for one or more conditions, especially substance use disorders. So we get into the idea of mindfulness where it's not spooky and what practically is happening uh, neurologically uh, and how that affects behavior and helps you achieve what some people would want to define as recovery. So let's meet Dr. Aileen Van Wee. Well, Happy New Year, Aileen. Happy New Year. Dr. Van Wee. Aileen, are you the first Van Wee that's a doctor? According to my father. Yeah. That has not been fact-checked, though. I don't think it has to be. Uh, <laughs> thoroughly. <laughs> So not many Van Wees, and the first that arrived here in the 1600s were pioneers. They weren't doctoring anything but themselves. <laughs> um, well, that's that's quite of an achievement in families, and it's exciting. And I'm I'm really excited that you are in town, and we can have a podcast because we always have meaningful conversations. Um, 
And I'm always picking your brain clinically. And I've had such a career change in the last two, three years. Uh, you've been a great support of not only encouragement, but a resource uh, to ask uh, to bounce things off of uh, you. And what is profound is that I've been an addict <laughs> or addiction. Really? It's been a scenario in my life. Um, and you just took this natural course after graduate studies mm-hmm. and getting your PsyD, you end up in drug and alcohol treatment. Yeah. And you're not in recovery yourself. Right. So before we get there, why don't we tell a slow story? What was the draw to psychology and when did it start? Well, you know, that's an interesting question. And I think it's something that psychologists have been asked in countless interviews and, you know, by general people, families, friends. And I haven't met anyone who knows a true answer. We have stories that we've come up with, you know, to explain how we got into it. But I think for me, what feels the most natural as an answer is to say that when I was in high school, I really found myself being drawn to being that person to lean on when you're having a difficult time and, you know, really take in all of the struggles that people are going through and having my eyes open to that and being a source of support. And also, you know, figuring myself out and not having a good handle on myself and my own emotions. And, you know, there's the one route of going to therapy yourself and doing the work or getting a whole doctorate and a degree and helping other people and avoiding that. Or both. (laughs) Or Or both. both. Exactly. Do you, so just, just to pause there for a second, Mm -hmm. do you find good therapists get therapy? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the first year, Mark, you noticed in yourself, and I think anyone who knows you is uh, an above average sense of empathy and an ability to use that empathy prior to training or or the draw to psychology. There was more of a humanistic uh, virtue happening in your life. People can lean on you. And I think when people say that, it sounds general. Mm -hmm. That means you can listen to someone's pain prior to having training. Did you sometimes yourself get affected by the depth of someone else's pain and not know where the boundary or autonomy was for yourself. Even after training. Absolutely. You know, that's something that's a constant conversation with peers, colleagues, um, but even more so before training that hearing the depth of the difficulties that people have endured, it, it does affect you and you do learn how to deal with it more over time, but it's a constant conversation. Was the first way in dealing with it was becoming aware? Were you ever, say, in high school, college, mm-hmm. friends, a crisis arise with friends? They're leaning on you. They know you could. They could trust you mm-hmm. with something serious. This scenario, this, this can, this rises up in you. It, their right. pain's lingering with you. Would you, were you even able to articulate that that was what was affecting you, or did you think it was your own life? Does it get muddy? It was definitely muddy, and I. I had some degree of awareness that it was affecting me, but I just didn't even really have good language for my own internal experience at that time. And grad school really helped me with that. And so being able to put words to 
what I was thinking about and fixating on and struggling with emotionally because of my own stuff and other people's. Yeah. I just didn't, I didn't know what to do with all of that. What what, what was your concentration, your major in undergraduate school? Was it psychology? Psychology and Spanish. Yeah. Did you pick it right away? Yeah. I went into Claire. So you knew after high school. Mm -hmm. So what say senior year, I'm just, Mm -hmm. I want to, I want to bore down here. What is it about the study of psychology, the the science of it Mm -hmm. to be contained in method? Were you surprised by things that were unintended, uh, unintended truths or consequences, say, from an experiment? Or were you immediately drawn to the therapeutic measures of psychoanalytic? Like, were you picking a side already? Right. I think. And how would, how would you, yeah, how would you divide them professionally? How do you call it like the, a PhD, PsyD? Mm-hmm. Okay, one is, say, you know, the study of, right. of, of the mind. The other is this clinical training. How, how do you mm-hmm. explain that to a layperson? Well, I think the first thing that's important is that even though in the field we do distinguish them as separate entities, they are inherently intertwined. You can't have effective clinical practice without the research and without that foundational understanding of study that's more geared towards a PhD. Um, And the same with the research end, you know, you have to pay attention to what kind of research you're doing and who you're doing the research for that has a clinical lens to it, that they need to coexist. Yeah. So what were you drawn to first seeing what psychoanalytic, talk therapy uh, can produce in someone whose life has been put on pause or isn't mm-hmm. always in a state of crisis from either a mood disorder, an addiction, right. um, clinical depression, some spectrum. Mm-hmm. You're seeing, wow, this really works. This yes. changes people's lives. Absolutely. And so I would enjoy reading about the research and the discoveries that we've made, but really it was the the clinical therapeutic focus of, okay, if somebody can go in and just talk to another human being, we have these specific methods, these strategies of how to have conversations of how to produce effective discussions that can in time affect change that really drew me in. Yeah. Well, I guess I'm trying to, Build a story from my own understanding mm-hmm. of what you were drawn to personally, how this is going to evolve and yeah. how it evolves because of circumstances you don't decide where your first oh, clinical practice comes. <laughs> and so you're on your way to graduate school. You finish mm-hmm. undergrad and you're going all the way. Mm-hmm. At that point, what would you say you understood about addiction as a condition or a disorder? Without, without a good answer, what did you personally see? Like what lens, what was your bias on it? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Joe Van Wee. the host of All Better. I'm also the CEO of Fellowship House. At Fellowship House, we believe long-term recovery requires a personality change as well as a clinical intervention. These ideas can take several months to achieve. Our philosophy is to provide a safe, therapeutic, and exceedingly active environment for patients to achieve these 
personality changes. And find joy in the fellowship of recovery, which will allow for long-term sobriety. We believe that recovery extends beyond treatment and peer-to-peer communities into real life. In Fellowship House, we provide a design for living that focuses on education and service. We have strong relationships with the 12 universities and vocational schools in the area and assure that our fellows pursue their personal goals while entering sobriety. We also stress independence and responsibility, making sure each individual is financially solid and self, and helping to make their community a better place. As a treatment center, Fellowship House offers both residential and outpatient treatment services to individuals and families affected by addiction and alcoholism. We're a DDAP licensed provider of general outpatient, intensive outpatient, and partial hospitalization programming, as well as a level of care assessments. If you want to find out more information about Fellowship House, please visit fellowshiphouses.com. I think the bias on it was that it was something I knew nothing about and that, you know, through the the things that we talk about in society of you have to be in the program to get it. And if you're not in the program, you're All separate and it's guarded language yeah. that's just for program people, just send right. them there. They'll exactly. get better. Okay. And, and I think that's something that continued throughout grad school as well, where it's like, okay, that's separate. You have to be in the know to do that kind of work. And if you're not in the know, then no one wants to touch it. And let's, let's pause on that. So w- that we're agreeing in the know can also would, would this be accurate peer to peer someone that's for people in recovery to help other. Cause yes. we're, we're such a broody bunch. We yeah. only, you have to be branded with yeah. your own addiction. Absolutely. Okay. And I didn't understand that going that I thought that going into grad school, I would be in the know in that peer to peer. I thought they would teach us skills to, really be a clinical aid because I thought that was happening more yeah. and that there were a lot of mental health providers actively involved in the treatment of addiction. And so my own lens looked a lot different than other individuals in the program and the you know, professors that we had, because I kept asking like, okay, how is this going to get tied into all the discussions we're having, all the things we're doing? And I kept kind of drawing blanks there, you know, and a lot of people were not really having that discussion and saying like, well, I don't know much about that. You know, that's more of people who have master's degrees in addiction specific Mm -hmm. areas. And so this is your experience in graduate Mm -hmm. school. And I've heard this, uh, you know, famous clinicians, doctors, Gabor Mate, well, Mm -hmm. he had an hour of training that was 30 years, 40 years ago in medical school about alcoholism, which was probably just some garbage mm-hmm. repackaged idea that was incomplete still yep. is. So you're in graduate. Do you, this is systematic though. This isn't just absolutely isolated to your experience. No, because you know, I went on to do a dissertation in addiction and addiction research and I couldn't even get good 
data for my literature. <laughs> I didn't have a lot there. I couldn't even get a consistent definition of um, addiction or substance use disorders. And that was very jarring. So two things, you can't get data. Mm-hmm. A, it's a hard uh, population. Uh, it's yes. cohort uh, mm-hmm. to track, um, especially people in what you would deem a late stage addiction can have no addresses. Right. Uh, move often. Do mm-hmm. not want to even admit they have this condition, even in mm-hmm. not late stage. Very hard to get data. Um, it's not like inpatient treatment centers are offering data outside no. of marketing purposes. Mm-hmm. So that's a problem. Second problem you just uh, s- s- stated is there isn't a shared definition. Uh, I grew up where it was alcoholism or drug addiction, drug dependency, mm-hmm. substance abuse. Now it's substance use disorder, opioid use disorder, yep. um, which I think are be- it's better language, substance use disorder. SAMHSA mm-hmm. has a different definition than the American yep. Psychological Association, American yep. Psychological rehabs have their own independent condition. Mm-hmm. We think it's this kind of stance. It's a genet- geneticist have an idea that it's a genetic disorder. Psychoanalysts say, no, that's only activated with an emotional life. So I know you may not answer this, but I want to throw a Hail Mary at you. Sure. Does this get solved in the next 30, 40 years? Can we get a, a professional consensus that we're, that addiction's a secondary problem? I would love for that to happen. I think I've seen some small changes moving forward for this to be better integrated. Cause to go back to what you were asking me earlier about, you know, is my individual experience in grad school consistent? Yes. Our, I have data that only 30% of American graduate degree programs that are doctoral level even offer a single class in addiction. Mm. And most of those are, a single elective credit where you're just getting like a very quick and dirty kind of overview of the different types of substances that are around and how it's related to mental health. Yeah. And I think that that's, that can be a disservice because it's just the way you described it. It can leave this after glow that, Oh, addictions caused by this drug in this way, Mm -hmm. this drug does it. Yeah. And it's, couldn't be more false. Right. That addiction doesn't come from drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, and the disorder isn't just limited to drugs. Right. Uh, the disorder is this complex neurological yes. response to pain. And mm-hmm. uh, it could be a behavior, an agent, an outside agent that could create euphoria. So I like Gabor Mate. Was, I've seen smarter language, but I guess just to tie that off that little thing we were talking about one one thing that would be tremendous would be can we all share a def- same definition of addiction mm-hmm. hopefully yeah I samsa think, has a good one i forget I, which one they have I, gone by i would have to read it look it up but i i've read it a, i always go to it to draw from it like before right. a group i'm like let me make sure i'm saying this Right, because <laughs> so it's, have the words. It was, you could tell a lot of intelligence went into it. Um, sure. My favorite that I, I think is simplistic, but very meaningful. And I forget where it came from, but addiction as a false refuge. Yeah. And I, I really like the way that boils down because you can see that there are other 
factors and components like false refuge. What are you seeking that refuge from and how are you doing that? What does that refuge look like for you? It's usually on my desk. Um, it's uh, refuge recovery, which mm-hmm. I got active in online. Um, it's a Buddhist approach, the eightfold path towards mm-hmm. recovery and that, you know, it's a false refuge and uh, addiction is also driving this, 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 this virtuous idea in your head that's false mm-hmm. that the cure for your pain is pleasure. Yeah. Um, especially with opioids, but mm-hmm. I have a book here. I could just cut it in later, but uh, that Gabor Mate's is this short term behavior or ingestion of something, uh, irregardless of long term consequences for temporary lo- relief. Absolutely. And you can't have rational thought about the consequences. You need the relief immediately mm-hmm. from thought to action. Um, and to your question of like the, the common definition, I think that false refuge premise is where we could go with this because that is the root of all psychological distress, right? So that you're something is in distress. There's something that you are seeking refuge from and the way that our body, our brain, whatever is going on with us is trying to seek out that refuge is where we end up having problems. And it's a great, approach that it really bores down to the, if addiction drugs are the problem, mm-hmm. detox is the solution. And why doesn't that work? Exactly. <laughs> why isn't exactly. a homeostasis rise up in your frontal lobe? Your brain's like, mm-hmm. Oh boy, well, I made a mistake. Don't do that again. Magic. It's because your, your body's telling you you're in pain, emotional, mm-hmm. physical, or bondings off attunement low dopamine, something's causing this. That's just, it. that's where the story could get complex. Is right. there a, a, a anatomy that's different? I'm not mm-hmm. producing enough dopamine. So this causes certain cognitions we call negative thoughts, rumination, mm-hmm. resentments. We were talking about it yesterday. I don't know what your idea is. This rumination, A, calls it resentment to mm-hmm. refeel. We were describing them in a group. I uh, put it on the chart as ski slopes. And these slopes are neural net pathways. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sitting bored. Oh, I know what slopes. I know how to ski down. Mm-hmm. This person got me. I'm never going to be good enough. I have to settle up here. I want yeah. this. So a fantasy life rises up. And mm-hmm. it's a life that causes distress in my head, uh, fantasy or mm-hmm. anxiety about the future. Yeah. But I don't know any other slopes. Exactly. Like exactly. these are the easy paths to take. Yeah. And if I do that long enough, I'll drink for relief. Mm-hmm. And then people just see drinking as the problem. Why don't you mm-hmm. just stop drinking? Mm-hmm. Well, cause it's a nightmare when I'm not drinking. Yeah. <laughs> and then once you have used drinking as the way out one time, that changes the chemistry in your brain long-term. And so the way that your brain is experiencing dopamine and serotonin, these things that we need to feel happy and fulfilled, that's going to be affected. And so using opioids for an example, if you start using heroin for a couple of years, and let's say you've been off it now a year, two years down the road, clean, your brain is still not accepting dopamine and serotonin levels the way that you were pre-addiction. Yeah. And so that threshold that you have to get to, to feel joy and contentment even is so much higher. 
and this goes beyond what someone could call will or agency. Far beyond. And the the bridge between this, how would you advocate, does MAT make this period, say the first year or two years mm-hmm. of the recovery from an opioid addiction? I don't want to shoot heroin. I don't want to die. But man, uh, it's I can't get three months. Mm-hmm. I'm in some fundamentalist group that says you can't do MAT, sober, sober. You know, you mm-hmm. see that debate's getting more logical. But how substantial is the difference of a really good, thoughtful, monitored MAT program mm-hmm. of someone has a goal of, I don't want to be on MATs in a year. Right. Another one says, well, no, this is just going to be good enough for me. How, how do both of them proceed? Um, yeah. And how are they different? Like if someone just wants to mate, do a mm-hmm. maintenance assisted treatment, um, right. with a, uh, subutex, uh, what's, what's the other one? Suboxone. Yeah. Um, how does that give them quality of life back? Have you have direct access to this? Yeah. So the first place that I worked that was an addiction treatment center did a lot of MAT and we would have subutex and Vivitrol and, you know, a lot of the individuals who were curious about getting on those medications had a lot of the same questions that you were just asking, you know, what does that path look like? How long-term is it? Will I be accepted going into these recovery groups? Um, And personally, I've seen people feel a lot more confident in day-to-day recovery when they have that as an option, either short-term or long-term. Okay. And, you know, I think it's the same with everything where everyone's got their own path for it. You know, it depends on how much you've been using, how long you've been using, what your brain chemistry is looking like as far as how much assistance you're going to need to be able to combine with your willpower to keep moving forward in recovery. So one story is measuring the person's withdrawal. Sure. Um, length of use. Mm-hmm dosage mm-hmm. and how long this has been going on. Right. And it usually coincides with the, the deepness of their trauma, be it if it's emotional, neglect, violence. Mm-hmm. Um, you see a correlation that late stage addiction uh, usually comes from a well of deeper traumas that are, are substantial. And early stage too. I, I've, yeah. Trauma is a very, very prominent theme across the board. And how would you describe trauma? Like, um, how do you tell like a a, a patient? I don't know what trauma is. I thought trauma is a car accident Mm -hmm. or I've been Mm -hmm. violently attacked. Yeah. How would you tell them there's, there's a word and a definition in between those two words? Well, I don't always tell them because sometimes, you know, that word has become so popular now. Everything's trauma informed or that's trauma. This is trauma. Every episode of that. Exactly. (laughs) And some people really connect with that and are looking for a word to describe their experience that has a community built into it. Trauma is something that I've heard about. And if that's what I'm experiencing, other people have gone through that too. I've got books, resources, podcasts, whatever it is that can help with that. But other people just really struggle hearing that word and labeling the experiences they've had as trauma. 
would you put, can you describe people? I'm not saying it's research, but like, is there a grouping you can make? Is it an age up that trauma, like say 40 up traumas? It, they don't have this new pop culture definition that trauma is a little right. broader. Right. Like, are we seeing people like this is the same word as like, you see God used. Well, well we all have, there's, Mm-hmm. 40 people in the room, mm-hmm. they have 40 different definitions. Yeah, I, I would say that age is a factor. It is more common for younger generations to kind of use that label of trauma. Culture is also a huge factor, Yeah, you know, depending on your lived experiences, your cultural background, the kind of conversations that were had in your family and your community about what trauma is and who has it. Yeah that can really affect how you see that word as well. Cause it's, it started as a very white middle-class kind of term being used. And so groups that do not fit into that category often describe their pain and experiences in another way. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, I'm, as you're talking, I'm thinking, I'm just taking a, a stroll through my memories. The first time I think I would relate the word was probably to mash Mm-hmm. Like ER, yeah. this man has trauma, his blood squirting right. out of his shoulder. Like that's, that was the limit of it until mm-hmm. the last five or six years I re-enter recovery in a new way. And, you know, I needed to hear new language mm-hmm. on, on top of some old ideas. And I've used a lot of different resources in different recovery communities, but that word, um, it resounded with me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what does that mean? And I just thought, okay, here's some forms of trauma I never considered. I didn't know it was a broad idea. Yeah. PTSD, uh, prolonged abnormal grief. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I was starting to relate it. I'm not a clinician, but can it be the cause of ADHD in some sense, mm-hmm. some sense of detachment bonding? Right. And I, I saw a whole new story being told of why a person like me could be anxious or uh, fight or flight pro- mm-hmm. pre-addiction mm-hmm. and addiction soothe it. Mm-hmm. And they seem to just have a rubber stamp and they're saying that this is a realm of trauma, this is a realm of trauma. Yeah. And it resounded with me, but I could see that it doesn't with other people. And that's where your professionalism could come in mm-hmm. that sometimes is lacking in peer to peer communities that you would take the time to understand someone's culture, social background, mm-hmm. that you can't just say, no, this is how you're doing it. This is how you yeah. join this group. Um, do you, do you see, um, how does someone get that training? How long did it take for you to see that that's where you would be distinctly different than an, a paraprofessional or a peer to peer when someone has real trauma or a different culture? You know, I think obviously throughout grad school, my program was five years that I I learned a lot about how to expand my own thought to not just what my own lived experiences were, but to think about how someone else's might've been different. And with that in mind, how do I approach another human being? But those conversations don't stop with grad school. You know, programs are getting better, just like trauma is being discussed more in the general community. We're still just kind of doing it in grad school too. It's not like we're light years ahead of the general population. And so continuing to 
interact with other people and read books and attend lectures throughout time is important to develop that. Well, that was what I always said. The first symptom that you're having a spiritual awakening is that you have unbridled pure curiosity. Yeah. Yeah. And this is a spiritual quest as any seeking mm-hmm. is in that sense. But the curiosity, I, th- I think real good graduate specialized educations produce people who will profoundly mm-hmm. be curious the yeah. rest of their lives. Right. Because it's like, I went into grad school hoping that by the end of grad school, I will have achieved this arbitrary level of confidence and knowledge. It's like, okay, I will have checked the box. I will know the things and I will be ready for life. And then you get to the other end of that line and it's like, oh, I've learned enough to know that I know nothing and that there's so much more out in the world to continue learning and to continue being curious about that I can only hope to be more knowledgeable about in the future. So your first, how, what was the position and where were you working with addicts distinctly? Mm -hmm. So this was in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. Um, If you've ever seen the show, the wire, um, like right around that neighborhood. I memorized it. (laughs) Um, So it was in in that general area and it was an inpatient uh, recovery treatment center that had, also some IOP, the intensive outpatient, and they had just established two recovery houses in the community, one for men under 27, one for women under 27. So I came in at a really unique time and I was there part-time as a student clinician with a friend of mine. And we were able to design this treatment program for the individuals in the recovery houses. So I did inpatient groups and then really developed my own structure for how we can continue helping people once they moved on to the houses. And so would this be 28 days or not three months like in Baltimore and uh, then they go to the house? It was mostly 28 days, depending 20. on the insurance, you know, depending. Nice. Sure. And I, yeah, I, I've, I kind of found that straight oh, 27 is this arbitrary weird mm-hmm. number, but is that the number in Maryland that you found on someone yeah. else's insurance? Because it's, it's, it's the number that insurance has decided yeah. is good enough for you to be walking out the door. So in that 28 days, um, this is your first, and you, you're designing this clinical program. How did this responsibility fall on your, your lap? Well, it kind of was came a- down to, I, I was limited in some senses because I, was not a licensed drug and alcohol counselor. Oh, yeah, and so yeah. even though I was a third year doctoral student, I did not have the necessary classes. LPN be, or some, some certification. You yeah. have to, and I looked into it to try to get the certification and I needed several more addiction classes, which makes sense. I had yeah. only gotten one, <laughs> and you, you know, so that's logical. Not true. You lived in Scranton. I'm your cousin. <laughs> the I'm the weirdest fucking guy in this neighborhood <laughs> and town. You, you had experience with weird, uh, weird addictions. You know, I submitted an essay on that and shockingly they didn't accept it as life experience to be able to get certified, but yeah. effort was there. Um, so the, because again, you know, everything comes back to insurance and the systems that we have to work within. I wasn't allowed to do any individual therapy with any of the inpatient individuals. And so I could run groups. And so I did that and I found myself with way too much free time and I don't like sitting by idly, neither did my friend. And so we said, Hey, like we're, 
we're working with all these people when they're inpatient, we're seeing them go to the recovery houses. Let us do something with them. Like we're just kind of sending them out into the world after one month and they're still struggling. And there's no continuum of care that is is a system. Right. So you get to design. That's I'm I'm so excited because that's why you're Van Wee. Why sit around, (laughs) go design and make something happen. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. So you design a continuum of care that will now be there as a structure and a support past 28 days that will bring them into a recovery house. And I mean, this, this is an emergence that's only been happening last, you know, seven, eight years where people are saying, no, recovery needs a year Mm -hmm. at different levels of care. Mm -hmm. Um, And you got to design that program. I was so excited when I remember when you were doing that, talking to you about it. Um, I might've been drinking them, but I was still cheerleading. You can be both. <laughs> well, yeah, it's not mutually exclusive. I, I always need drunks in my life. If I'm sober or drunk, I need my peers. Uh, we stick together <laughs> on a sinking ship. <laughs> always. Um, so from there, what what was so? What would you say was the most transformative thing? If it was an idea or something you learned from an addict, and a person themselves that was profound to you that like, holy shit, that give you a new insight of what addiction is and what its recovery could mean mm-hmm. in that window of designing that. Yeah. I think what's coming to mind and what I didn't feel prepared for that first day walking in was truly what the impact of the trauma is. Cause like we were saying before, you know, we use that word so commonly now, but actually sitting there and I was assigned to do this pretty structured group. So we've got the worksheets, we've got everything handed out. It's like, okay, here are the skills. I'm here to teach you skills for this hour. And I would just have these side comments come up from participants in examples like, okay, name a time that you were angry and what's something we can do to cope. That's supposed to be very flowery and, you know, very general. And I would hear these deeply raw experiences of immense trauma just casually thrown out there. But you see that look in their eye of, I don't know how to actually express this. Like I have all of this built up inside me and where is my space to let it out? Yeah. Because here's a room full of people who are nodding along when I say something horrific and graphic that I have endured and then I have to just move on to the next item on the list. Oh, man. And that's just so hard. And it's not, you know, there is a, a, a give and take there where there's space where you have to and is, teach skills. But To interrupt, mm-hmm. is this is some of these things that make you move on, are, are some of them coupled with mandates that have to be brought through through these groups in, say, Maryland? or Sometimes, but other times it is also down to the clinical judgment in the room. Like if I have a group of 20 people and someone has said something like that, I can't turn the entire session around to focus on them because that's not appropriate for the whole group because that can be re-traumatizing to other people. And And it's also a lot for that one person. There may not be enough staff to to say, hey, let's, Mm -hmm. let's, you know, have a processing group for this guy. Let's get him right into an individual. Not every Mm -hmm. place has the resources to do this. And was this a Medicaid population, the census? 
And that rips my guts out because this is where the needs, mm-hmm. like, you know, if two or three clinicians, you're running the group. I mean, yeah. that would have been great. All right, bird dog, that one per go in this mm-hmm. room. They're there. They're ready to talk. Right. Let's see what we can get right. done in 20. 20- Holy shit. And that's where, you know, like we do have things in place, you know, it, no <laughs> psychologist is going to just sit on that. Oh, great um, to see you. Let's go get some sandwiches. Like, <laughs> thank go. you. That was a great example to share. So we're going to move on. Anyone less traumatizing yeah. thing to say? Um, so you do follow up at the end, like, Hey, I really appreciate you sharing. Like is, if there's yeah. something you need to check in with, but I wanted people to have a a better space where they can just process what's going on. And I'm known for always going back to let's just get a group of people together and learn from each other about what we've dealt with and kind of get it all out on the table. Now, as a a psychologist um, and not being in recovery, Mm -hmm. Did it take a little effort to watch peers help each other in your presence when you're facilitating a group? If you, how, how do you use your judgment? Now you, you, you have training, you went to school, but mm-hmm. you see, you see someone with 28 days about to leave the program. Who's really helpful to someone in their second yeah. week. And you let, do you let that happen? Like For sure. It, and when did that judgment arise in you? Did you just, was it through raw experience of working in this treatment center that you're like, I'm not going to interrupt this. Yeah. And I think that's something that I had to figure out on my own because there's no class that you can take to prepare you for that. Um, But I think it comes down to the recognition that we serve different roles. Like there are things that I'm going to be able to help you with that I can provide explanations for that you haven't had the opportunity to learn on your own. Yeah. But if you also have an opportunity to sit next to someone who has lived an experience similar to your own, you're able to take advice from by all means, why not add to the support? How much have you learned from your patients there? Oh, tremendous amounts. And would you say you learn more about recovery from them than anything? You would? Absolutely. Hands down. It's, it's a human story. Mm-hmm. It really is. And it's, mm-hmm. it's experiential. Um, and so sometimes like you could see why it's hard to have research and data of just your experiences of making but man, we need it. There's got to be a good way yeah. to do this. Mm-hmm. Do you ever get interested in maybe being a part of collecting that data or finding a way that's not intrusive, not exploitative, mm-hmm. but can produce better systems and modalities? Do you ever get drawn to that? Sometimes. Um, I always ask every clinician, are they ever going to get a research bug and disappear? And- <laughs> you know, I think I was really discouraged by my own research in grad school and just how hard it was with all of the dropout that you see. And, you know, really the research that you see out there in psychology is what we call evidence-based practices. Right. And that's all of the manualized stuff. It's the stuff that has the worksheets and the homework. And there's a specific thing to say and a specific schedule to adhere to because that's what is easy to research. Right. You know, it's a lot harder to, get data on something and generalize it when the individual sessions are going to be so different. So when you have modalities like motivational interviewing, which is where you have the states of change for addiction, right? Like the pre-contemplation, contemplation, that stuff that gives the therapist a lot more leeway and gives the client a lot more leeway too, in terms of what your day-to-day sessions are going to look like, which is great. That's the kind of stuff that really gets me going. But 
how do you quantify that? How do you yeah. research that on a larger scale? Yeah. And I think there's a huge temptation to have research just focus on chemical, biology, anatomy, mm-hmm. trauma, head trauma, physical mm-hmm. trauma, nutrition is it leaves, it leaves away the agency, the idea of consciousness. Sure. Like, I, I always, I, I don't want to get spooky, but mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm getting settled with my consciousness uh, has been buried by, yeah. by the reality of this world. That's mm-hmm. kind of the shortcut I found for mm-hmm. my addiction and made my therapy far more meaningful. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, how does this end? Where did you, did you proceed anywhere else in another level of care after Baltimore that was focusing on addiction and drug and alcohol treatment? So it ha- hasn't been like, if you looked up the definition of the sites that I've been at, would you mm-hmm. see addiction there? No, but yeah. any site you're going to, you're going to see addiction come up. Right. And, and you so, get an hour of train, you get one class to prepare yourself that's of something that's hemorrhaging in every mental health, mm-hmm. ER, medical, dental. People are going to dentists yep. to fulfill their addiction. Absolutely. ERs, police stations, magistrates, homes, universities. And, and this is being taught that it's a neurological problem, mm-hmm. a genetic problem, mm-hmm. or it's, it's from the drugs, how potent the drugs mm-hmm. are, will cause mm-hmm. this. Do you see this changing soon? A little bit. And so the American Psychological Association recently, and recently I mean last year, started coming out with this curriculum for graduate students of six modules that should be taught, like six hour long kind of PowerPoints that should be taught so that people are better prepared to understand addiction and to treat it. And there is good information. I gave one of those presentations to uh, my school that I had gone to after I graduated um, last year. And and there's a lot of valuable information in it, but six hours isn't going to change the game here. This is more of a presentation to identify that the person before you may have an addiction. It's it's not in-depth training of... What addiction is, is it get into? What it, does it have a shared definition of how addiction rises and the means of re- pathways to recovery? Or is it just identifying addiction? It was a mix of all of that. So okay. it was like module one is what is addiction? And then module two is how does mental health and addiction go together? How might those two be related? Maybe they don't. (laughs) We've never discussed this before. I wonder if possibly there's a link here. Yeah. And then the third is if you think maybe that link is there, what about this idea of trauma? So let's talk about how trauma is involved in this. And then kind of general overview of modalities that are commonly used in therapy to address addiction and then like a nice takeaway message. So now you're, you're effectively trained, right? Well, um, where, where, what are you doing now where you're seeing addiction, mm-hmm. uh, you know, bump into this level of care? So I work at an inpatient psychiatric hospital. So yeah. I mostly see individuals with primary diagnoses of schizophrenia, other psychotic disorders, personalities, personality mood disorders, disorder. mood disorders. Yeah. All of that. And that's very commonly comorbid with addiction. So, Wow, this is 
I want to talk about this because I don't anyone who's dabbled in psych one one oh one abnormal psych, you know, it's just these are weird weird concepts and problems, mm-hmm. psychiatric problems mm-hmm. from schizophrenia. Um, now that the DSM five has changed a lot of these mood and personality disorders, has put most of them on a spectrum, right? So even schizophrenia. Yeah, so it's I would use the term spectrum loosely. What what mm, how would you d- describe it? Like, can someone have different um, severities of how schizophrenia is interrupting their lives from like, can you have schizophrenia without auditory hallucinations? Yes. So how do you describe, like when you would make a diagnosis of someone, um, 18 year old male, mm-hmm. um, paranoid idea, say he's meeting all the markers in your DSM five, right. but he's not having auditory or visual hallucinations. Mm-hmm. Um, how is that annotated that it's schizophrenia and, Versus schizophrenia with now I'm seeing shit mm-hmm. and hearing shit. Right. that's substantially different right. in my opinion. It is substantially different. And, <laughs> and there, there isn't. It is not annotated anywhere. Yeah. And especially when you're in a hospital system, a lot of times people just get this blanket schizophrenia diagnosis. Every hospital I've been in has a different blanket diagnosis. One yeah. was everyone's diagnosed with schizophrenia until proven otherwise, basically, or schizoaffective oh. disorder until proven schizoaffective, otherwise. Schizo- schizoaffective means schizophrenia plus some kind of mood component. Okay. And, and so that, cause that's, that's a catch all, you know? So schizophrenia, borderline personality disorder, mm-hmm. any antisocial, um, disassociation kind of disorders really where you're kind of all of them have this earmark. You are removed from a shared reality. That's, yes. Uh, and it can make you dangerous. It can make your life really horrifying. And is there moments where a person has agency and knows they're suffering something substantially different than the pill, or they have a memory that maybe there was a life prior to this that, Say they're suffering this from years. Is it, how do you fucking watch that? Mm-hmm. Like someone, yeah, like almost wake heart. up and look, help, 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 mm-hmm. and then they're gone. <laughs> so, <laughs> like you said, like psychosis really can look very different. Like there are people who are, for most intents and purposes, well functioning in okay. general society, but they have one delusion, one non-reality based belief that they are latched onto. And delusions are the one thing that we at this time do not know how to treat well with medication. It is the most treatment resistant symptom of psychosis that there is. Give an example of a delusion versus maybe something that's like a, I don't know, a pet affection that I have, but it's not a delusion. What makes something a delusion? So a delusion and it's, most base uh, explanation is not any non-reality, any persistent non-reality based belief. So if I persistently believe that I was in the CIA, that's a common one. Okay. Yeah. That. Yeah. They're always in the CIA. And especially when I was working close to DC, well, that was common for prevalent. people who were tortured by the CIA too. Yeah. <laughs> every, every once in a while you wonder there, sometimes it's, it's true that they were formerly in the government. You never know. Yeah. Um, yeah and cool. so, you know, if I have this belief that I was in the CIA, yeah. everything else that I'm believing that I'm experiencing in my day to day is consistent with everything, everyone else around me. 
but I, to my core, believe that I was in the CIA. I don't want to listen to any evidence that is contradicting that. Any, yeah, anyone that's challenging me, I have explanations that tend to make less and less sense as you go on, but I'm locked into that belief. And that's such a, like, Herculean belief that Mm -hmm. your entire identity is going through the lens that, okay, I am a product of being Mm -hmm. in the CIA. Mm -hmm. Everything up to this point, my relationship to you is through a lens that I was a CIA agent. Holy shit. And that's, that goes back to the idea of the false refuge. Like why the hell would I want to change that belief? Because disconfirming that belief means acknowledging that I am a however year old adult that has been locked in this mental health system for a substantial portion of my adulthood that I did not have this thriving career in a government agency that is well known. I've been here and that that's not true. Why would I want to, how does someone believe that? Have you seen breakthroughs from things you learned in school? And I've learned Mm -hmm. are pathologies that are seem terminal. And I don't want to say that you're the clinician. You could correct me. So terminal by meaning a psychopathy, um, sociopathic, uh, narcissism, like a really Mm -hmm. high stakes Mm -hmm. one, schizophrenia, a paranoid schizo um, disorders applied to someone. Are you seeing better stories or or breakthroughs, not only pharmaceutically, but with Mm -hmm. talk therapies that, you can now, this person could leave the CIA mm-hmm. in this fantasy. Cause that's gotta be devastating. Their entire yes. power structure, meaning fundamental meaning of their life is mm-hmm. tied in this narrative. So they don't have to, cause it sounds like reality is horrifying. Yes. If I, my life's insignificant, it's, it's a, it's a grope of power. Mm-hmm. Like to, mm-hmm. uh, and people that have no family involvement will have this belief that their family's uh, there. They're waiting for them. And that is soul crushing to hear. You don't want to go up to someone and say, no, you, you, you were never married. You don't have children. That's not true. Or even if you do that, they're, they're not involved in your life anymore. But, but to your question of, you know, how common is that, that kind of idea of this is, this is it long-term that's not so common anymore. Oh, wow. Yeah. I've, I've, I've read a book recently, a psych book. I don't know. It's over here, but I couldn't believe what I was reading because I, mm-hmm. I haven't picked up one in a while. And it was saying there's borderline personality disorder, schizoaffective, paranoid, uh, mm-hmm. delusional. They're seeing long-term effects, people reintroduced into work and stuff. Absolutely. And, and I was like, when I was a kid, if you were that man, you're, you're fucked. Mm-hmm. You, yeah. you let go too much. That, that was the mentality. <laughs> and then they came up with a little bit after that, this rule of thirds, like if you're diagnosed with, psychosis, something related to schizophrenia, a third will have one break, then, you know, go back into their everyday life. No problem at all. A third will have a couple of hospitalizations here and there, but overall be able to maintain. And a third, that's it. And so we don't have that anymore. It's so much better than that. And I think that older mentality of what schizophrenia looks like long-term is the biggest barrier to people accepting their diagnosis because they're scared of what that means for their life. And how did you diagnose me? <laughs> <laughs> let's, uh, let's throw some darts on a wall. I'm sure. not holding you anything. 
amuse me, entertain me in this sense. If you had to pick a reoccurring theme, if say we could just talk in the caveat of emotional life, bonding, Mm -hmm. and the environment in which you're raised. Mm -hmm. Genetics, let's mute it for a second. Turn the sound down on it. Schizophrenia, severe reality distortion kind of disorders, diseases, concepts. Mm -hmm. Take away genetics and the anatomy structure if they didn't have a head concussion or Mm -hmm. something. Do you see a common narrative of extreme neglect, abuse, and in any form in any of these stories of people getting better? Is the genesis, or or is it mm-hmm. coupled with other? If we're muting that, is it severe right. abuse? What Not could, that I've seen. No. Wow. What, what what makes sense of it? What can what, Maybe it's my bias of needing a universal story mm-hmm. to all of this. Maybe it's, yeah. but the symptoms are so f- distinct and mm-hmm. plotted CIA, mm-hmm. but you, you, you start reading case mm-hmm. studies of schizophrenics, all these uh, paranoid there's, there's common right. symptom, symptomology, like right. even like, uh, what is that called? Thought broadcasting. Mm-hmm. I hear your thoughts. You're broadcasting yeah. them to me. Right. What the fuck, man? Why are they producing the same symptoms? Why are they coming from the same thing? What would cause that? Well, I think it boils down to the human experience of safety and control, right? Yeah. Of, you know, the paranoia of, are people out to get me? Are they trying to hurt me? Someone's after me. We all just want to feel safe and secure. And then are my thoughts secure within my head? Is, do I have control over my thoughts, my actions? Uh myself i've tripped my face off and i've lost my grip for a couple hours on Mm -hmm. that it's terrifying and so i think that's where i see the themes boiling down to but the way people get there looks very different across the board it could be anyone so if it was a mechanism if uh, it was fight or flight kind Mm -hmm. of just gone fucking haywire we're living in a world that is it's just not needed for daily an average life of 30 mm-hmm. running around killing other mammals to eat. Right. <laughs> like I don't have to assess all these complex threats mm-hmm. through a forest or more raw nature. I'm doing this so, through a meritocracy, social structure, yeah. uh, competition, gossip, rumor, stature. Mm-hmm. I'm now applying fight or flight. This, this, you know, bronze age leftover, or even earlier to social things, education, yeah. competition, socioeconomics. Mm-hmm. Do you see some people, this, this anxiety of social achievement or fitting into our culture could cause mental illness? Do you think our culture is causing mental illness? <laughs> I think our culture is creating mental illness. It's create, right? well, it's defining it too. It's defining it because we're, we as a society are the ones that sit down and decide what is normal and what is not. Yeah. The sky is blue because we have all gotten together and said it's blue. So when someone says it's not, that is mental illness. And that's why the cultural loading is so important to consider for what we're pathologizing and what we're not, because not every culture is following the same script. And so, you know, some, 
religious beliefs. Talk about hearing the voices of your ancestors. You tell someone in this country, you're hearing the voices of your ancestors and you're probably going to end up talking to a psychiatrist. I think it's, I grew up with friends that have, um, had serious conditions Mm -hmm. and, but they also talked poetically. Oh, absolutely. I see people almost aggravate Mm -hmm. the diagnosis or, or the, uh, the, Mm -hmm. the labeling of what was wrong with them. Mm -hmm. And they were just talking like a poet. Yeah. And that's how they interpreted things. Mm -hmm. And so talking to my ancestors means intuitions motivating me. Let's say if you were Latino or specifically uh, from Mexico city, you could Mm -hmm. talk to this idea if you're more or shaman. Um, yeah, language, it's its a conundrum. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. it's good that diversity and understanding of that's being trained more. I don't think it was in the 50s, 60s, in any universal way, right? No, and we can still do a much better job. Um, there's more regulation over ensuring that it's included in programs, but... You know, it comes down to each individual to take it from this kind of face value, factual level to really understanding and implementing it in your work. Well, will you be available to be an advisor at uh, my PHP? We're going to need your help, Aileen, some guidance and consulting. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Um, It's coming up to the hour and... um, do you have any final thoughts or ideas if you could just shoot your well wishes out to training and, and seeing a curve, where would you like to see it first and in, in schools mm-hmm. for training clinicians um, when it comes to addiction and sharing a definition of it? Yes. I would say just being more involved um, and taking that leap and jumping into the pool and actually being open to doing work to address addiction and how it's impacting mental health and trauma and how all of that goes together. Economy. And so I think just, yeah, just, just diving into that conversation and being willing to be a part of the treatment process and the treatment team that's helping someone through recovery. And for the final 40 minutes of the show. I want to let's address your dad. Absolutely. What is his problem? I mean, would you like that list alphabetically? I don't know what order you'd like us to go in. We have to give him praise uh, before he, he, Jimmy, you're, you're my favorite uncle that listens to my podcast. (laughs) Yeah. He said he wouldn't drive me home if I didn't say something nice about him. So. All right, Van we men, we need to be validated Absolutely. Hour, hourly. That's its own diagnosis. See yeah. it in the DSM six. Yeah, but that would be. I hope these concepts get better and broader. We need more language. Yes, so. we do. Aileen, thanks for coming on thank and you. all the help. I'd like to thank you for listening to another episode of All Better. You can find us on allbetter.fm. Or listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and Alexa. Special thanks to our producer, John Edwards, and engineering company 570 Drone. 
please like or subscribe to us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And if you're not on social media, you're awesome. Looking forward to seeing you again. And remember, just because you're sober doesn't mean you're right. Hi, this is Joe Van Wee, your host of All Better. I had a few announcements. If you're interested in subscriber content, which we're about to launch, this would be step workshops, cognitive behavioral therapy tools, and mindfulness practices that are approachable and can be very useful in reducing anxiety, rumination, and depression. Please send us a a message on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. And if you like the episodes that you've been hearing very much, please stop by Apple Podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and a small review. This helps us stay relevant in the field of content and helping people and their families with substance use disorder. Thank you.